they're the thieves and they're the child molesters and they're the, the extortioners and they're the, the kidnappers and the sexually immoral and they're the um, greedy, they're the greedy CEOs who rip us off and the corrupt politicians. That's the lawbreakers. We're all pretty familiar with them. We can identify them pretty easily. But the second group of sinners are not the lawbreakers. I'm going to call them the law keepers. And they're a little bit more difficult to identify. Because the law keepers are, quote, good people. They're the ones who are using their time and their talent. Perhaps they're building wells in impoverished areas around the world. Perhaps they're the ones who take their vacation time and go and help out the inner city and the poor and the needy. These are the people who are going and reading to, to children in impoverished neighborhoods. These are good people. These are the people you want as your neighbors. These are the people you want to work for. These are the people you want as your friends. They are kind and they are nice and they are justifying themselves because of the things they do. But make no mistake, they are just as far from God as the lawbreaker. So today we are going to look at two different types of sinners, law keepers and law breakers. Let me add a little bit of good news to this. That while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and each and every one of us is a sinner, the good news is this. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And we will see that today, that Jesus is a friend both to lawbreakers and law keepers. And as we approach this particular passage of text in the Gospel of Luke, I, I have to conclude that Luke was a... This account in Luke is a masterpiece. It is perhaps one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. I, I'm... I find it difficult to find a passage of text or an account in Scripture that is as gloriously beautiful as this one. Luke paints this picture so beautifully. The picture itself is beautiful. The nuances are amazing. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the nuances, but we won't get into all of the subtleties. But the strokes that Luke uses to paint this picture is certainly a masterpiece. Perhaps the relationship between Naomi and Ruth rises to this level, or perhaps um, Joseph on the day that he forgives his brother, perhaps it rises to this level. But the more I read this text and the more I studied it, I mean, when I first started this text, I said, oh, this is about the woman who washes Jesus' feet, and this will be a good story. And I'm sure there's some good nuggets there, and it'll preach. And as I began to, to meditate and read this over and over again and study, I'm like going, this is pure genius. This is just absolutely beautiful. And so I hope and pray that somehow I can bring out the beauty of what Luke has painted for us. Um, and he's done so by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that that whole, same Holy Spirit enables me to communicate the beauty of this passage of text. And that you will join and, and see the glory that Luke has given to us 
in this passage of text. So if you will, let's read our our passage together. I'll be in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Follow along with me as I read through verse 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer? And Father, we give you praise and thanks, Lord God. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And may this church hear your word, heed it, and go about living our lives in accordance with your word, to live as did your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, our... Our text opens with Jesus getting a dinner invitation, so he's invited to a Pharisee's house. And um, we don't know exactly where this was. Obviously, it's in Galilee because Jesus is continuing his ministry in Galilee, which is the northern part of, of Israel. And that's where the focus, the beginning focus, the, the focus of Luke's gospel, at least the first part of Luke's gospel, is, is located. So Jesus goes to this Pharisee's house and he's going to have dinner. And I just want to stop here and pause for just a moment and reflect upon this because when we've talked about the Gospel of Luke, one of the things we've noticed is that Luke is very interested or Luke tends to give great attention to the outcasts. All right. That's one of the focus. Remember, way back when we started Luke, some time ago, when we did an overview of the book of Luke, one of the things we talked about is how interested Luke is in, the, is in those who are shunned, those on the outskirts of society, the, the, 
the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the ones who have no voice. And so we see that in this particular um, passage of text. Luke is very interested in this sinful woman. And Luke, in fact, Luke spends a lot of time talking about women. We'll talk, in fact, we'll be introduced to a number of women next week. Because they're on the outside of society, because they're marginalized, Luke gives great attention to sinners, tax collectors, um, Gentiles, People who society seems, especially the religious elite, tend to look over. So while that is an emphasis for Luke, I find it very interesting here that Luke makes certain that he does not convey that the elite, that the socially acceptable, are not in need of Christ as well. So when Jesus goes to the house of this Pharisee, one of the religious elite, one of the in-crowd, one who is not shunned. He is going because all people need salvation. We are told to pray for all types of people, kings and those in authority, because all types of people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nobody, there is no class of individual who is not in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes to this Pharisee's house, we'll get into um, why he was invited and hence we'll understand why Jesus went. But Jesus went to bring salvation to this household. He came to bring salvation not only to the outcast, this sinful woman, but also to those who were the elite. the elite, He came to bring salvation to lawbreakers and to law keepers because all of them were falling short of the glory of God. And so he accepts this invitation. He comes into the house and he reclines at the table. And then we see this phrase, and behold, a woman. Now when we see this word behold, it is put there because the author is indicating that something unusual or something shocking is about to take place. So when you're reading the Bible and you see behold, something's about to happen. And behold, a woman comes into the house. Something unusual is about to take place and Luke is letting you know. Pay attention. I'm about to tell you something, and you probably should pay attention to what is about to occur. Behold, a woman entered into the house. Now, it wasn't completely unusual if you were living in those days, and especially if you were someone like a Pharisee or somebody who was in the uh, upper levels of society. If you were going to have a dinner and you were going to invite, say, uh, a recognized guest, a traveling preacher to your home to have dinner, it was not unusual to have the uninvited guests come and kind of, they, they wouldn't be part of the dinner, but they would stand along the edge of the walls and they would then be permitted to listen into the conversation that was going to take place. So, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, you invite the preacher out for dinner. I'm not asking you to do that right now. I'm just saying that that's kind of common. And uh, so they invite you, perhaps this is a Sabbath, and they invite, perhaps Jesus was even teaching in the synagogue. They invite him over for dinner, and all of the, the Pharisees and religious leaders are sitting around to have dinner. But people from town come in and go, I'd like to be in on that conversation, and at least come and listen. And so 
There would be people standing around listening to the conversation. This one is unique because behold, a woman arrives. And not just any woman. It wasn't like this was the wife of Simon. This was a woman from the city. And behold, she was a sinner. This phrasing is given to us because this is a woman who is held in disdain. This is a woman whose sin is public. She is from the city. We all know what she's done. Everybody knows her and she probably knows a few people who are standing around. We all know her. We all know what she is. And we all condemn who she is. Her sin is entirely public. Imagine, just the few of us who are here today, imagine if your deepest, darkest sin was exposed and known to everybody. You know the thing that you try to keep secret. Maybe your husband or wife knows about it, but it's the thing that that is shameful and you would prefer nobody to really know about. And that was public. This is the woman. She is publicly scorned. And behold, this woman enters into the house. She had learned, it says, that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee. And so she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She had learned. She learned that Jesus was in town. I don't know exactly how she learned. Perhaps he was preaching in town. And somebody told her. Maybe she saw him at the synagogue. Somehow word of Jesus came to her ears that Jesus is around and she went to go see this man. Now, before we move along here, I I need to pause and give a little bit of information about this woman because if we don't, I think we can easily get off track. And so I'll just go ahead and make the statement that this woman is a believer at the time she enters the house of Simon. She is a believer. All right. I will give you three reasons um, why she is a believer or why the text informs us that she's a believer. I'll give you two right now, but I'll save one for later. So you've got to stay awake, okay? <laughs> And by the way, this all comes, I'm going to draw this meaning out of the text. I am not just coming and saying, it fits my uh, sermon outline better to make her a believer. All right? Or it fits my agenda. We're going to draw this from the text itself. And if we're careful, and we carefully study the text, we will come to the conclusion, definitely, that she enters the house as a believer. The first reason why we... I will hold that she is a believer. This particular passage of text makes absolutely no sense if she is not. In fact, we will end up going in a, a very strange direction or come to some very odd and heretical conclusions if we don't believe she is a sinner, or if, she, if we don't believe she is a believer when she enters the house, we will end up in a works-based salvation at the end of this. And once you, if you come to a, a conclusion that is heretical, you need to go back and figure out your steps. And if she's not a believer, you would very easily come to the conclusion that one is saved by their works. So that's our first reason. But here's the second reason, and it's a little bit more subtle, but I think it's much more. Um, 
clear. And that is, <clears throat> a behold, a woman of the city, note this, who was a sinner. Now, I'm going to get a little technical on you. And I know you guys don't mind that. But the word was a sinner is in the imperfect tense. All right. It, there's a variety of ways you can make the statement. She was a sinner. But the imperfect tense is very interesting because an imperfect verb it speaks about something that occurred in the past, went on for a period of time and then stopped. So there was a time she was a sinner and she lived as a sinner in the past and then she stopped being a sinner. That's the weight of the imperfect tense. So she was at one point a sinner. Now the town is still considering her in that state. They still consider her a vile woman. Most likely we don't know what her sin was. Most likely it was that she was an adulteress or a prostitute. We don't know for a fact. But most likely that's what she was. And she was that for a period of time in the past. But there came a point in time where she was no longer a sinner. She enters into the house no longer that way. Though the town and the people and the Pharisee consider her still a, a woman who is unclean and of ill repute and needs something. That's not the reality. The reality is that's who she used to be. And when she comes into the house, she comes in as a follower of Christ. She has heard His message. She has heard that God actually loves sinners. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. She's going to ask who I am. And He's my friend. She believed the message, and so she comes not to receive forgiveness, but to express her thankfulness that Jesus has forgiven her. That's why she's there. She's not there to earn forgiveness. She's there to express her thankfulness and her love for this man who is not abusing her, who is not using her, who is not casting her away, but one who values her and has saved her soul. As I said, I'll give you my third um, reason as we draw to the end of this message. So this woman heard that Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is a friend of sinners, is dining at Simon's house, and she goes to give thanks and express her love to the man who, is, who has forgiven her. So this is actually an account of a person who's experienced God's grace and now expresses thankfulness, and she does so without shame. She's going to open herself up to ridicule, but she just doesn't care. Ridicule me all you want. Do you see who's here? This is Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. This is the one who's loved me. I don't care what you think about me anymore. Look who's here. The other thing that is important for us to understand as we go through this, because what we see her do is she wets the feet of Jesus with her tears and all unpacked that in a little bit and kisses his feet and anoints his feet with oil and dries his feet with hair, her hair. We're going to get into that. But the thing that necessitates it, necessitates those actions is a glaring omission. Why does Jesus need to have his feet washed? 
Why does Jesus need to have oil poured on his feet? Why does he need to have his feet kissed? Why is any of this even happening? I think this is critical to our story. It is critical to this masterpiece. If we get this, it will help us understand what's going on. Now, see, when you would enter into a house, the very first thing they would do would be a kiss of greeting. I mean, we still see that, and that's the bare minimum that would happen. And I know we don't do that here, but like when we go to Ecuador, that's the way we greet one another. There will always be a kiss of greeting. Kiss one another on each cheek. That's just what you do. That would be bare minimum hospitality. But the other thing that that would be done is you watched somebody like a servant in the household, especially a guy like Simon, a Pharisee, a fairly well-known person, would have uh, somebody who would wash the feet of travelers who come in. And you would anoint people with oil. And perhaps uh, um, oil was the soap of the first century. In fact, there, there were rules that you couldn't even begin a meal before you would wash your hands with oil. You couldn't even say the prayer. That way you can say grace before you wash your hands with oil. So these things had been entirely omitted. Now, some Bible students will say this was an oversight or this was uh, somehow neglected or just in poor taste. But I'm more convinced by, by those Bible students and commentators who have actually lived in the Middle East for long periods of time and say, oh, this just isn't done. This isn't an act of neglect. This isn't a, an act of, oh, I just kind of forgot something. This is, an all, this is all-out rudeness. This is hatred. They despise Jesus. This isn't something you just, oops, I, you know, I mean, you come over to my house and I forget to ask you if you need a glass of water or something like that, Okay. That might happen. This isn't that. This is utter and complete contempt for the Messiah of the world. So the very act, the thing that necessitated her actions was that these men were having Jesus over not because they were interested in him. Like we encounter in many places in the in in the Bible, the Pharisees sought to trick Jesus, to trip him up, to expose his words and to show that he is illegitimate and you should not listen to him. This is the test. So she's going to offer what's been refused. The common hospitality had been neglected and I'm going to maintain it had not simply been neglected, it had been deliberately refused. Like I said, prior to dining, they, they would wash their hands and wash their feet with olive oil. They, they wouldn't even begin a prayer until the hands were clean. Um, and um, so this is a glaring omission. And so when she begins to act, her acts are not random. She is seeing the hatred and the disdain that the host holds for the guest. And she is going to make certain that the guest is welcomed. Even though she herself isn't welcome. She's going to do for Jesus what the host neglected, failed, refused to do. 
One of the interesting things, and there's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but one of the interesting things about this portrait that um, Luke paints for us is that this... I found it interesting that this woman says nothing during this whole encounter. We see no words from this woman. But let me tell you, her voice is loud and clear. This is probably one of the most clear statements of love for Christ or love for God in all of Scripture. Not a word by her is recorded. But what an amazing thing she proclaims. Kind of reminded me that the heavens declare the glory of God and how earth from day to night creation speaks of the glory of God. And you and I know that the sun doesn't talk. You know, stars don't talk. But it says that these things proclaim the glory of God from day to night, even though they don't even even though they don't actually speak. This woman is not speaking, but she is declaring the glory of God in such immense ways, in such beautiful ways. And so here she is, she comes into the house, and here is the one who has forgiven her. Remember, she's forgiven already, the one who has cleansed her of her sins and befriended her sitting at the table his feet stretched away from the table she's at at his feet and she begins to weep and again the text is um, is uh, is vivid at this point it's literally a shower of tears are pouring out from her perhaps tears of joy Martin Luther calls this heart water running down out of her off of her cheeks and onto the feet of Jesus and perhaps they are tears of joy but once again i think i'm a little more convinced that these are tears of anguish or at least a mixture of joy and anguish because here's Jesus in this house these law keepers and they're despising him and how can you despise somebody so beautiful and she's in anguish over the fact that this beautiful beautiful perfect man is being treated so unrighteously and he is being treated with such disdain and such hatred how can you do that perhaps tears of joy because she's finally seeing the one who has forgiven her but perhaps tears of anguish as she experiences the hatred that is poured out on the man who's loved her and these heart tears flow onto Jesus' feet oh normally if somebody would have Um, wash the feet of somebody they would have a towel available she doesn't have a towel available to her probably all she has is her garment but that's probably not too accessible or appropriate and so she unbinds her hair and she begins to dry the feet of Jesus with with her hair you need to understand how inappropriate this was a woman just would not publicly unbind her hair In fact, it was grounds for divorce. If your wife would let her hair down in public, a husband could divorce his wife. This was a very intimate act. In fact, we have read some 
some various Jewish writings where on a wedding night the newly married bride would for the first time let down her hair on the wedding night and allow her husband for the very first time to see her with unbound hair. This was a very intimate act. It was not an act that was done publicly. It was reserved for the privacy between a husband and a wife. She's like, all I got is my hair. And I will unbind it. And I will endure the shame to show love to the man who has befriended me. I don't care. I don't care what you think about me. I care what he thinks about me. Highly inappropriate. People were to anoint one's head with oil. She probably couldn't get up to the hair of Jesus, so she said, well, I got perfume, I'll stick it, stay at his feet. And she has this vile perfume, which of course was precious. This was not just your typical olive oil. This would have been something very valuable. And she anoints the feet of Jesus. Oh, if I can't anoint his head, I'll anoint his feet with the most, one of the most valuable things that I own. And so let me just give a quick summary of what's, what we have here. We have this forgiven woman. She witnesses the rudeness or perhaps the hatred of others towards her Savior. And she responds with this incredible, beautiful act of love. She is utterly and completely unashamed. Her, her love cares not for the opinion of others. I don't care what Simon thinks. He's just a hypocrite anyways. And she's identifying with Jesus. You treat him rudely. You treat him with hatred and disdain. That's the way you may treat me because I unbind my hair and do this loving act. I don't care. You treat him with disdain and you treat me with disdain. I would rather be disdained with him than praised by you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Well, Simon sees this. And I love this statement. When the Pharisee uh, that didn't even say his name. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, notice this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman it is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. So this lawkeeper questions if Jesus is even a prophet. If he were a prophet, he said to himself, he would know what kind of woman this is. I do... Uh, I, I, I find it amazing that this so-called prophet would allow a woman to touch him in public. I also find it interesting that Jesus is not one iota embarrassed by this. Nor does he chastise her or reprimand her. He doesn't say, hey, listen, lady, I appreciate this, but, you know, this isn't the time or place for that type of thing. You know, maybe after dinner... Some folks can get together and I'd be happy to have a word with you. He does not stop her. He does not chastise her. He just simply allows her to do this act. And so, the Pharisee says to himself, if he were a prophet, he would stop this. And then the interesting thing that Jesus said, this, and Jesus answering him. Did you get that? Isn't that great? Some of you get that. 
What did Simon say? Who did he say it to? He said it to himself. This man can't be a prophet. And Jesus answers him as a prophet. (laughs) Demonstrating his prophetic ability. You say it in your head. He's not a prophet or he can't be a prophet. And Jesus knows your thoughts. Clarify. Oh, I absolutely am a prophet. I know exactly what's going on here. I know what you're thinking. I know what all these men around this table are thinking. There is absolute clarity on my part. Simon, let me address your concerns that you spoke to yourself. You mind if I have a word with you, Simon? No, go ahead and say it, teacher. I'm going to tell you a little parable. And this is a really well-known parable. There was a, there's basically three characters. There's a money lender, and he loans out money to two people. One person borrows 500 denarii, another person borrows 50 denarii. In the end, the issue is that neither could pay. And the lender forgives the debt of both. So it's a very simple parable. And then, of course, Jesus says, who loves more? I'll get to that. So here's the scenario. Two people borrow money. One, probably about a year and a half salary, of a, a loan of about a year and a half's worth of salary. The other, about a month and a half of salary. And that fluctuates, just like our exchange rates rise and fall. That's a pretty rough idea. But that's about what it is. So one person owes about a year and a half, and another person owes a, a debt of about a month and a half of salary. But, but the issue here isn't so much the size of the debt, but the fact that the lender says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to forgive you both. Now, all of us would rejoice on that day, would we not? Whether you have a credit card payment that's going to take you a year and a half to, of salary to pay off, and, the, and Visa calls you up and says, you know what, it's done, we're just going to go ahead and negate it. You're going to be kind of happy that day, aren't you? Or if you have even a payment that's only a month and a half of, of salary, you're like, right on. A lender, two borrowers, here's the issue. Neither could pay. But here's the big point. This is a revelation to Simon. Because we often, we certainly identify the woman as being the greater debtor. But here's what Jesus is saying to Simon. I know she's a sinner. At least she used to be a sinner. But here's the point, Simon. You're a debtor too. You, the law keeper, also have a debt. And it's a debt you can't pay. Whether it's 500 denarii or 50 denarii, doesn't really matter. You're in debt and you can't pay. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you may get closer than I do. But guess what? You still miss the mark. And you're still short of the glory of God. I don't care how close you get. If you don't get to the destination, you're still under the same condemnation. Simon, I know who this woman is. Here's what you don't realize. You're also a debtor who cannot pay. Do you realize that, Simon? And so, you... So, his heart is now exposed. He's like, you want to focus on the sin of the lawbreaker, but I want you to focus on the response of the lawbreaker. Because her response has produced extraordinary love. Oh, she was a great debtor. But because she's been forgiven so much, look at the way she responds to forgiveness. You, on the other hand, don't even recognize that you have a debt. Now, before I go on, let me, I, I don't want us to miss this very obvious thing about forgiven debt. When a debt is forgiven, 
It's not like the debt goes away. It still has to be paid, doesn't it? Somebody has to bear it. So if I loan you 20 bucks and you say, well, you know what? I'm having trouble paying you. And I say, don't bother. It's good. I bear the $20, right? $20 still has to be paid. It just comes out of my pocket now. If a lender forgives you of a debt, it's not like that debt went away. It still has to be paid. It just means it's not going to be paid by you. But now the lender takes it on themselves. It's going to be really important for us to just hold that thought. You probably know where I'm going to go, but just hold that thought. See, forgiven debt still must be paid, only now the payment falls to the lender. The lender now incurs the cost. So he asked Simon, so who loves more? And I love this, I suppose. He knows. Well, I suppose. He knows that Jesus knows that he's a sinner. I suppose the one who is forgiven most. Now we should clarify a couple things and make sure we understand what this does not mean. Because it's very easy, and I actually read a number of sermons that implied or even were explicitly saying that the person, the the serial murderer who is forgiven is much more um, loving than, I don't know, the law keeper. That's just not true. You do not need to be the worst of sinners to love much. All right? So sometimes we make a, and perhaps rightfully so, make a big deal out of people who have, um, you know, the serial murderer who is the child molester who is forgiven of their, of their sin. But I would suggest to you that anybody who realizes the gravity of their distance from God because of their sin and hears that God will forgive them. This is why we talk about sin in the church. I, I don't know how a church doesn't even talk about sin. How can you even talk about, about forgiveness if, if you don't talk about sin? What are you forgiven from? Well, what great thing? Is there, there would be no joy. If you're not forgiven of anything, what joy is there? Well, those of us who realize, you know what? I sinned against the holy God. Great love comes from great forgiveness. In fact, I, will, I may be getting ahead of myself here, but sometimes we, we think about <clears throat> how do I live a life that is pleasing to Christ? And sometimes we reduce living a holy life down to sheer willpower or I'm just going to do the best I can and I'm going to grin and bear it. And we have this very moralistic approach to living the Christ-loving life. And there may be places where we do need to try harder and we do need to have some self-will and all those things. But I think the better approach is this. We need to learn to love Christ. One of the ways we learn to love Christ is know what he delivered us from. See, this woman isn't going to go back to the way she was. Why? Because she loves so much. Why would I go back to that when I have this? Why would I want to violate and hurt the one who has loved me so much? Why would I even do that? 
Do I need to try harder? Maybe, but perhaps the better approach is how do we love more? How is Jesus more glorious? How is the love of Christ greater? And one of the ways to remember where we were, what has Jesus forgiven me of? And not just in the past. What has Jesus forgiven me of today? And he's revealed something in my life in the past, say, a couple months. And you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't know that I was offending you in that way. Oh, Father, have mercy on me. I think the antidote to sin is love. Not just any love, but loving Christ and knowing from where we were. And so, from great love comes great, for, um, great love comes from great forgiveness. And then Jesus turns to the woman. This is great. I, I'm trying to picture this in my mind. He turns to the woman and says to Simon. So I'll put the woman over here. Turns to the woman and put Simon over here. And turns to Simon. Do you see this woman? Which is really interesting. Well, of course I see that woman. I've been seeing her since the time she came in the house and started doing all those inappropriate things. I know exactly who you're talking about. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you, you did nothing but express hatred and derision. She, on the other hand, Simon, has shown love. Do you see how Jesus just flipped the tables? I just love this. She's not the one to be despised, Simon. She's the one to be emulated. <laughs> She's not the one to be called a sinner. She's the one to be copied. Simon, I want you to act like her. This never entered his mind. A few minutes ago, he was going, who is this woman a sinner? And now Jesus, the guest of honor, who I thought I was going to put up and make a, a, a sport of, all of a sudden has flipped the tables and is calling me the sinner and told me to act like her. She's exalted. And Simon is now put down. He's like, this is not turning out like we had planned. Me and my buddies were sitting around figuring out how we could make sport of Jesus and wait a second. This is not what we planned at all. Sinners are exalted, and I, the righteous lawkeeper, am being despised. Oh, heaven has a completely different view of things, doesn't it? This self-righteous lawkeeper is taught that this former lawbreaker is not to be despised, but is the one who's to be emulated and turns the table and honors her. She's not the sinner, Simon. You are. He's like, oh, wait a second. How did this happen? And then he looks at the woman and he says this. Your sins are forgiven. And here's my third reason why she is a believer when she entered in the house. And unfortunately, every translation I found, except one, says your sins are forgiven. New American Standard says your sins have been forgiven. And I will say I am no Greek expert. 
but have been is a way, way more accurate statement. This is a verb in the perfect tense. I told you about imperfect tenses. Now I want to tell you about a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb talks about an action that happened in the past, only the benefits are still going on. Your sins have been forgiven in the past and you now remain in a state of forgiveness. This is what Jesus is saying. You've been forgiven in the past and you are now standing here today a forgiven person. I am just telling you that you are in a state of forgiveness. Let's put the whole package together. She was a sinner. Imperfect tense. Happened in the past, went on for a while and it stopped. And when did it stop? When she was forgiven, which the forgiveness happened in the past and she is now in a state of forgiveness. Do you see that? That that flow. She was a sinner living in a state of unforgiveness. She came to a place where the sin stopped and forgiveness picked up. And redemption picked up. And now what is her continually ongoing state is one of being forgiven. This was a woman who came in having ceased from her sin, having been forgiven, and now expressing her love for Christ and Christ affirming to her in person Yeah, your sins. Yeah, they're gone. But remember my point that debts need to be paid? Just because he's forgiven her debt doesn't mean the debt went away. It just means somebody else has to bear it. And there will come a point in time, perhaps a year, a year and a half after this event, that Jesus will walk up Mount Calvary with a torturous cross on his back, he will go to the place of the skull and there he will bear the debt. He's forgiven the debt. It just hasn't yet been paid for. But in a very short period of time, the debt will be paid. It will not be paid by her. It's forgiven. But it will be paid. It will be paid by Jesus himself. And he will walk up that that mount, that hill, and he will bear the wrath of God for her sin. The wrath that was to be poured out upon her. That, That debt, that payment that was destined for her has now been taken on, forgiven. You don't owe it anymore, lady. But the debt still has to be paid. I'll pay it. And I'll pay it on Calvary. And folks, every single one of us have been in the same place. If you've been forgiven of your sins, you are in a state of forgiveness. But make no mistake, your sin still had to be paid for. The debt had to be paid. And it was paid by Jesus who bore God's wrath. All of God's wrath. All of it. The wrath that would send you to hell for eternity was poured out upon Jesus on that day. Your sin and this woman's sin. And every sin of every person who's ever confessed and whoever will confess Jesus is Lord, that sin will be poured, was poured out upon Jesus upon that day. Oh, it's forgiven. It just had, still had to be paid. It's just not paid by you and it's not paid by me. It's paid by this man who Simon despised. And the woman loved. Folks, how do we not respond like this woman? How do we not give love and glory and honor and praise to the one who has given us so much? And then he says, oh, and then I love how these people say, who is this man who even forgives sins? What a... These are just blind guys. Who is this man? 
Here are the religious elites standing around going, who is this man? Why don't you ask the woman? Because she seems to know. You educated fools know nothing. But this sinful woman knows exactly who he is. Blind guides. You got a question? I think you ought to ask her. She's the one who seems to know. And then Jesus turns to the woman and he says, your faith has saved you. This is why it's important that we realize your faith saved you. These good acts did not save her. This act of love was not the cause of her salvation. It was the result of her salvation. Your faith saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. Her works did not save her. She heard the message of the kingdom of God and she believed that saved her. She came to respond to Jesus who happened to be in her town. I'm a forgiven person. I'm going to pour out my love and devotion upon the one who has forgiven me. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace and actually go and remain in the state of peace. This is, I believe, a masterpiece. I have tried to communicate it the best I possibly can, but certainly these words are utterly and absolutely beautiful. I'll conclude with this, and I'll be very concise. If we are to love Jesus, we must first recognize our great debt. Both Simon and this woman were sinners separated from the love of God. Both of them. They both had a debt. If we are to love Christ, we are to understand our great debt. Second, if we are to love Jesus, we must recognize our bankruptcy. It's one thing to recognize your debt and think you can pay it. Many people here have debt. Maybe you've got a car payment, a house payment, a visa card payment, some sort of payment. And you're going, I am in debt, but I can pay it. I'm paying it every month. This is different. This is realizing I have a debt and I am utterly and completely bankrupt and there is no way that I can pay it. That's our next step. And the third step is this. To love Jesus, we must trust in His grace to forgive and bear the debt that we cannot pay. So I have to ask you, which sinner are you? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which one are you? Are you Simon or are you the woman? Because that's our choices that are presented before us. Are you a law keeper or a law breaker? We're one of the two. But either way, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And either way, the debt needs to be forgiven. And here's the thing. If you've never confessed Christ as Lord, if you've never confessed your sin and called upon the name of Jesus Christ, if you think for a moment that you can pay the debt yourself, I tell you, well, yeah, but you'll spend eternity in hell paying for it. Or the other option is this. Jesus said, how about this? I'll pay it for you. That's our two options. I don't care how good you are. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. I don't care how close you are to to perfection. You still have not made it. And your debt needs to be paid. And you cannot pay it. So Jesus has stepped in and he will pay your debt. I'd like to make that offer if that's something that is of interest to you.